Welcome to Willoughby Hills. I'm Heath Rosella. We got a fun one today. Fun at times, but intense at times. Lots of different things in this one. Christian Cooper is my guest today. I really think you're going to like it. Christian is a birder from New York City. He has a new show on Nat Geo Wild. It's called Extraordinary Birder. It premiered last weekend, and uh, it's running every Saturday for the next couple of weeks. So make sure you check out Extraordinary Birder on Nat Geo Wild. And I think it's coming to Disney Plus later this summer as well. So you can see it over there. Christian also has a new memoir out. It's called Better Living Through Birding, Notes from a Black Man in the Natural World. I love the book. I learned a lot. It's a book about birding, but it's also a book about Christian's life, his life growing up as a gay black man in New York. He was born on Long Island, grew up on Long Island, then eventually moved to the city. And birding was a way that he kind of found his identity, coped with his identity, figured out his identity. He did a lot of birding in Central Park over the years. Central Park becomes a major figure in the book. And uh, Central Park is part of the reason that we know Christian's name at this point, separate from the birding world, I guess. For those of you that don't know or don't remember, Christian was part of a viral incident in 2020. He was in Central Park doing some birding. There was a woman that was letting her dog off leash in an area that was sensitive to the birds. And uh, your dog is supposed to be on a leash in this area. So Christian asked her to leash up her dog. She refused, and they had a confrontation about it, which ultimately Christian ended up recording the latter half of, and this woman, who is not related to him in any way, but happens to be named Amy Cooper, same last name, she ended up calling the police on him, calling 911, and saying that there was a black man that was threatening her life in Central Park, and I don't know if the operator was having trouble hearing her or just what, but she repeats that phrase a number of times and kind of gets increasingly more frantic as she does. Part of the reason that that exchange caught any attention or, you know, ended up going viral is because it happened the same morning that George Floyd was killed. George Floyd was killed later that afternoon by police. And of course, George Floyd's um, killing was caught on video as well. And so all of a sudden you have kind of these two sides of the weaponization of police against black people both caught on video, both shared across social media, and kind of in the middle of the pandemic when we're all already very heightened. And it kickstarts a wave of protests in the summer of 2020. The Black Lives Matter movement uh, really came to the forefront then, and it really became part of the national conversation around race. So Christian was just a birder looking at cool birds in Central Park, happened to ask this woman nicely to leash her dog. It turned into a whole thing. It was caught on video and became a thing. And what I love about Christian's story is that he took the spotlight that, you know, kind of his 15 minutes of fame from that incident and turned it into some really positive things for his community, for the birding community, introducing people to the idea of birding, getting them excited about it, making a TV show, writing a memoir, it's it's inspirational. And I got to say, too, his book is such a good read. I am somebody that I'm interested in birds, I guess. I don't really know many beyond, you know, cardinals and blue jays and robins, like kind of the really common ones. 
but I do enjoy watching them. I do enjoy seeing them, certainly not to the level Christian does, but his book is not just about birding. It's really about him finding his identity and his voice as as a young queer person growing up in New York. He grew up on Long Island, and at the time he was born in the late 60s, was really feeling alone in his identity, really feeling like as a gay man, he was the only one feeling the way that he did. And it talks about sort of how he comes to terms with, with his sexuality and how he understands his place in the world and kind of how birds help with that. So we talk a lot about that today. That was really interesting to me. There's a lot in the book that we didn't get a chance to talk to that is just cool. And like you start reading it and you go, wow, this guy has a fascinating life. He worked at Marvel for a time in the 90s. He was a a writer and an editor there and was on the team that had the first Marvel character come out of the closet. And at the time, he, he tells the story that he didn't think anything of it and his team didn't think anything of it. But there was a huge PR backlash and Marvel tried to distance itself from this story. And, you know, it was a huge nightmare <laughs> for the company. So it's it's interesting just sort of how he tells the story of his identity and how all these different things factor in. And again, Central Park is kind of a big backdrop for all of it. And he does talk in the book. There is a chapter about that incident as well, if you're interested in that. But to me, honestly... I just really enjoyed getting to know Christian through his work. And yeah, it was a book that even if I didn't know him for this virality that happened, like I'd be interested in reading it. And I did read it and I liked it. I think you'll like it too. Better Living Through Birding, Notes from a Black Man in the Natural World. And then this show is phenomenal. Like he's going out and working with all these cool conservation groups that are doing all these things to help keep these these rare species of birds alive, to help nurse sick birds back to health, to help release them into the wild, and looking at what birds tell us about the world around us, right? I, uh, I like the show. You should check it out too. Extraordinary Birder on Nat Geo Wild. Here it is. My conversation with Christian Cooper. I wanted to start by just kind of marking this occasion, like you're in this kind of crazy week where you have a book being released, your memoir, you have a new show coming out on Nat Geo, and all of that happens to fall like in the middle of Pride Month and right around Juneteenth. And I just feel like all of that, there's some some serendipity or some fate or something to that. I'm curious just sort of, well, I, I guess let me ask this too, because you kept your birding piece of your identity kind of separate from other parts of you it seems like you didn't want to be a professional birder that was that was a hobby and now here you are doing that professionally in all these different places like just tell me about I guess kind of what you're feeling right now is as you have this big week in front of you I have to remind myself periodically you know because it can be a lot sure but I have to remind myself periodically that this is a huge privilege but so few people get to tell their story in their own words. Yeah. And certainly, you know, with the book, and I'll mention the title, Better Living Through Birding, but the, <laughs> the book is my chance to to do that, to tell my story in my own words. And that is a huge privilege to host a birding TV show where I get a much larger platform to do what I've been doing for a long time, which yeah. is spread the quote unquote gospel of birding. 
is a huge privilege um, to have access to all these incredible places to where people often don't have access to see the birds because they're protected, very protected, sure. is a huge privilege. So there's all these privileges. And then compound that with the fact that you couldn't ask for more in terms of people sort of picking up what these two things are and what I'm doing with them and sort of talking about them. Yeah. And and in this saturated media landscape, it is so hard to cut through the clutter. So to have so many people interested, which I am grateful for, and talking about it, I can't complain. I can only say over and over again, wow, I'm really lucky. Yeah. The show is really interesting to me, too, because I feel like, and forgive me if I'm mischaracterizing this or correct me if I'm mischaracterizing this, but like, I feel like as a birder, a lot of your role prior to being on the show was was more as, as an observer. You're looking through binoculars and seeing things at a great distance. But now you've kind of been put front and center. You're working with these conservation groups and they're, you know, breeding little baby birds and, you know, putting little stamps on them and things to track them. Like it's it's a whole different level of hands on. Like I think of, of birding as more of an observational hobby, I guess. Like what was it like to be kind of in that position? I think you're absolutely right. I mean, where it becomes hands-on literally is, for example, if you have a permit to do bird banding yeah. and you start doing that. And so you're, you're mist netting and you're, you're bird banding. Um, and that's some of what we do in the show. And the first time I had to do it, I was like, oh my God, I have to hold this delicate little bird in such a way to restrain it, but not harm it. Right. And I was so incredibly nervous about that. And then by the end of the show, I'm like, ah, bring me another bird to hold. You know? <laughs> Have you done well, that before, though? Have you had no, to like, hold them? I had, no, I, yeah. I had never done any banding of any sort. You know, that that's something you get, you know, some training to do. And, right. and you know, you have to have a permit and all that. So I was never actually doing the banding. I was always assisting someone who was permitted to do it. But sure. still, you're getting up close and personal with the birds. And it's your hands. Like if you, if you as you say, like if you sneeze and the bird flies yeah. off, like that's that's someone's hard work down the drain. Well, the the most, I think, nerve-wracking part was when I had to transport an egg yeah. of the endangered iguaca, the Puerto Rican parrot. Yeah. It's an, an endemic. Um, and, you know, they're really, their efforts to preserve the species have been incredible. And the Puerto Rican people just are so invested in this because it's almost like a metaphor for them. Sure. You know, that tiny island just struggling after they've been pounded by political neglect and mother nature sending hurricanes their way. Yeah. And yet the bird keeps coming back and they keep coming back. And so anyway, I, I had an egg from the Iguaca and I had to transport it just a short distance. But I'm like, this is endangered bird. I dropped this. I'm like, how many of the species am I wiping out You right. know, for how many generations? So that was a little nerve wracking. And then the other really interesting, that was in the Puerto Rico episode. And then in the New York City episode, we go to the Jacob Javits Center, yeah, which has done amazing things to make themselves green yeah. and a good citizen of, of the city. So we went to their green roof because they have this massive green roof where all these gulls are nesting. Right. And so I was hope, helping to ban the gulls. So I'm holding a gull to restrain it. And the gull was not having it. Yeah. And it got its beak loose and grabbed my face with its <laughs> beak. And I'm like... This is incredibly painful, yeah. but I can't let this bird go. Right. <laughs> so that was really sort of uh, an interesting moment. Yeah. I mean, they're they're pecking at you. They're clawing at you with their talons. Like these are birds that don't necessarily want to go through this exercise. But, they don't want to be manhandled. Yeah. Unsurprisingly. But it's important too. Like it, it needs to happen. And that's, um, yes. I guess, like for me, as somebody from the outside looking into this, 
that was an interesting piece in watching the show was just this idea that like I think of letting nature do its thing and just, you know, there's going to be winners and losers or whatever it is, but like realizing that it doesn't have to be that way and kind of humans can intervene and maybe should intervene. I mean, that's that's something that I feel like is kind of at the heart of the show is like when these populations are threatened, what role should we play in that? And particularly in situations where our thumb is on the scale, oh, sure. you know, right. causing so much of the change that they can't, they don't have time to adapt to. And that, you know, most markedly is um, with climate change. Yep. Uh, there simply is not enough time for the birds to evolve, to accommodate for how rapidly things are changing. Yeah. It's changing in a hundred years for us. And for them, it's millions of years of evolution that you're trying to correct. for. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So in those situations, I think we really have to step in and also in the other direction. And, and you see that in the Palm Springs episode where we're in the desert and because of people yeah. and all our trash, those super geniuses of the bird world, the ravens, are just booming in population because they know how to exploit the presence of humans yeah. and use all that trash to their advantage. But that creates a huge problem in the desert because eventually they spread out into the desert to go and breed, and then they start eating endangered desert tortoises as their protein source. And there are so many ravens down, the tortoises simply do not have a chance. Wow. So that's another situation where we need to put our thumb on the scale in the other direction, not necessarily in, in a killing way to, to hurt the ravens, but to discourage them using whatever means we can. And in the show, we go through some really incredible technological means to get the ravens to not target tortoises yeah. um, to disperse them and scatter them and get them to not be in such great concentrations. People definitely have a role. And I, uh, I think if you think of the planet as one big organism, yeah. we're like the brain cells. Mm. So we, we human beings as the brain cells have to use that intelligence to keep the rest of the organism healthy yeah. and to preserve the diversity that is part of that health. Well, that's something you touched on in the book too, that I found really interesting was just kind of like you focus in on the birds, but other people have their piece and there are other birders like you're part of this community within Central Park that kind of knows these birds and, you know, looks out for them and shares with other people. But like you have a friend that's really into the trees that you're not. He's like, oh, look over in that elm. And you're like, which one's the elm again? Like just kind of how all these pieces connect and kind of getting to this idea of our own interdependence, I guess, like you need the tree expert and the tortoise expert and the bird expert to kind of all come together. It's not something that we can all kind of do on our own, right? And you become aware of these other things. You don't necessarily become expert on them, but right. you become aware of how, you know, the birds need the trees. That seems obvious, but you become aware of just how much they need the trees. There's a, a guy named Doug Tallamy who's done tremendous work on oaks yeah. and how important oaks are and how corvids and in particular jays blue jays have evolved with oaks so oh, there's a relationship between that specific bird and the oak tree and so you know there there are connections that that we're still learning yeah and so that's why it becomes so important to preserve the diversity to preserve the species to preserve entire ecosystems at least in part somewhere so that these things that we don't even know yet right that are so important are still there. There's that piece that like 20 years from now, we might say, boy, if we had that parrot, <laughs> like, thank God we saved it kind of thing, right? 
Look, I'm trying. I, uh, I believe it's um, one of the main breast cancer drugs. Tamoxifen uh-huh. was discovered from the bark of a yew tree. Wow! And if you know, we had chopped down all those yews, right. we would not now have tamoxifen, that compound, to fight breast cancer. So, you know, that's a very selfish way as a human being of looking at it. I think there's value in the diversity of species on our planet, simply in that. Yeah, that that diversity in and of itself is valuable. But if you got to be self-centered about it, look, you want to preserve that diversity because that diversity is going to be where so much biotechnological innovation is going to come from. Right. Well, it's interesting, too, like in the Puerto Rico episode, there was this bird like you go kind of hiking deep into the rainforest and there's a bird, a little black bird that kind of lives within these these wooden cliffs. And the guides that you're with, they take out a big flashlight like you can only see it when it lights up and it lives kind of behind a waterfall, like just this idea, like, you know, we talk about, you know, Central Park or something, but like, here's a rainforest that like has very little human activity. And this, like, who would even know that bird is there? You know? Well, that's what was so amazing because, you know, I sort of pride myself on, you know, I'm going through Central Park and I know that this is here and this is there and this is here. And the quote unquote civilian walking through Central Park has no idea. And here I am, supposedly skilled and knowledgeable, and I would have walked right past this bird because it nests behind waterfalls. It's so elusive. And so it was such a joy to see it, to have somebody say, hey, look, this is here, and you would never know it otherwise. And it was glorious. It's so cool. And that's what I love about the the show. And, And I love about the book, too, I think, is in both cases, they let you look at the world differently. And like... Part of your skill set that you talk about a lot in the book is being able to hear different birds before you see them and kind of recognizing those calls. And what was interesting to me was that it, it almost felt like kind of Muzak in the background. Like I've been noticing since I started reading the book of just walking through my yard and being like, oh, yeah, that's there. Like, you know, I, I guess the Muzak comparison, like when you're in a mall or something and like it's just kind of always there. You don't think about it. But then you might be in a store and you say, Oh, that's an ABBA song or what? Like you start picking it out mm-hmm. and then maybe it's... somebody else says, oh, and that's that's a keyboard, whatever. Like it's just uh-huh. kind of the different layers of recognition that for most people, birds are just kind of there and they're ubiquitous. And you know, think about it. And for you, it has a very different meaning and just sort of it's it's really cool. I guess that's what I appreciated about your work. Well, and what's interesting to me is that everyone has the skill. Yeah. And you, you know, you think, ah, oh, no, it's really only special people have that. No, everybody has it. How can, how do I know that? Because when the phone rings and you pick it up and you hear, hello, dear, how are you? Yeah. The person on the other end doesn't have to say, it's your mother. Right. You know, immediately from the tone of voice, from the choice of words, from the intonation, hello, dear, how yeah, are you? Right. That it's your mother. All this comes comes to you subconsciously. It's not even something your conscious brain is processing. Right. It just says mom. Your your brain isn't thinking, okay, woman, old woman. Like it just, it the, it's all there. Right. So that's what's happening when you get familiar enough with the birds and the bird songs. You're walking through the woods. You know, there's all these other sounds. You're subconsciously sorting. Yeah. You're, a lot of times, you know, someone will say, oh, what was that song? And I don't even know what song they're pointing out yeah. because my subconscious has sorted a whole bunch of what I'm hearing and put them in the bin of ignore because right. you know what they are and you're not that interested right now. Yeah. But then in all of that, the one thing pops out that you do want to hear right. something either that you don't recognize or that you know is rare and you really want to see. 
and that goes right to the front. Yeah. And suddenly your brain is putting like flashing red lights, alert, <laughs> alert, yeah. focus on this. And right. It's all happening on a subconscious level. It's really interesting. I, I think the most interesting moment for me was when I was walking through the woods and my brain said, there's a black throaty green warbler here. Yeah. And I'm like, wait, because there, there had been no song. Yeah. And I'm like, why is my brain telling me that? And then I look around and sure enough, there's a black throaty green warbler there. What had happened was it had chipped, not the song. It yeah. had just given the little chip. But from having birded so long, I had learned the chip note of the black throated green warbler without even trying or thinking about it. Yeah. So that my subconscious heard it and said, oh, there's a black throated green warbler here. So, wow. you know, that yeah, that that's what's cool about birding is that you get a whole new level of perception and anybody can do it. It really isn't, you know, something unique to special people. It's what everybody does. You're just applying it in a new Field. Yeah. But for you, it's also 50 plus years of practice. I mean, like this, this came to you. Let's not exaggerate. 50. <laughs> we have not crossed. 50 on the dot. Okay. 50, well, 50, 51, something, okay. something, somewhere in there. <laughs> 40 plus. How about that? We'll go there. Um, Thank you. But, but lots of experience of like, I mean, this, I, I guess what I'm getting at is this hobby started for you as, as a little boy. This is something right. that's been with you almost your entire life. Right. I started when I was about nine or 10 years old. And it just stuck. Yeah. Um, what's interesting, I guess, too, is sort of the book. It's a memoir more than a birding how-to guide. It ends up being a birding how-to guide as well. And there's pieces in there that kind of relate. But it also, uh, birds kind of weave throughout your life story in this interesting way. Of you know, Part of what was interesting to me, I guess, even was just the taxonomy of like what different birds are and the idea that what we call a blackbird here in America is different than a European blackbird. And sort of it's you decoding kind of your identity as a gay black nerd in your words. Uh, that was exactly your yeah. term nerd there, but, but sort of not necessarily fitting into any of those boxes specifically or sort of in an expected way. And I, I guess I just wonder sort of uh, the book is a lot about you figuring out your identity and how birds played a role in that for you. It's funny, when I was writing that, I, w I first just started writing off about the fact that the red-winged blackbird had been my spark bird. A yeah. spark bird is a term we use in the bird world, which just means the bird that got you started birding, the yeah. one that caught your attention and then sucked you in. So for me, it was the red-winged blackbird, but then I'm like, oh yeah, and the blackbird in Europe, completely different. It's actually like our robin. Our robin in America is completely different from the robin. And you know, right. you just go through all of this and you realize, it made me realize, yeah, all those terms and boxes we we put things in, that's what we have to navigate, all of us, yeah. as people and in our youth. We're figuring out, okay, which of these boxes apply to me, which don't, which which uh, am I completely blowing apart? Yeah. And, and you learn that, you know, that's something we all have to go through. So, uh, it was a little bit of an apt metaphor, um, besides being a little bit of a dizzying introduction <laughs> to the confusing <laughs> nomenclature of birds, but uh, an apt metaphor for, for that process that we go through as, as youngsters. Sure. And I mean, I think for you, a lot of that journey you talk about, especially relative to your sexuality, being kind of a very lonely place of just the time you grew up and, not having sort of access to the things that we have today. I mean, I was just at the Pride Parade uh, in Boston this weekend and like huge turnout. Lots of my kids marched <laughs> with their school and there were lots of little kids on the curb and stuff. And it was just like, okay, like 
this is really positive to see. But when you were growing up, there weren't those role models. This was you were like, oh, I'm the only one feeling this. Yeah, no, I I grew up in the late 60s, early 70s um, uh, or throughout the 70s. Yeah. And it was a different time. Stonewall had barely happened. Right. And we didn't have Ellen or Anderson Cooper or right. any of those out gay icons. They, nobody was out gay. Right. It was something that, you know, families whispered about this bachelor uncle or, you know, someone, you know, knew something about this teacher, but nobody really talked about it. Right. And if it was talked about, it was with scorn and derision, you know, of, of that very effeminate person. Oh, my God. You know, right. how awful. Um, so that was the environment I grew up in to the point that it's interesting. I'm fa- endlessly fascinated by this, that. I had kind of figured all that out or enough of it out when I was about five years old to know to edit myself in what I said about, you know, who I was attracted to or the fact that I was attracted to anybody at all. Yeah. Because I knew very early from the age of five, basically, that I was gay. I didn't have the word for it, but I knew, you know, who and what I was attracted to. Right. So that was a very hard place to be in the 70s. It was just isolating. The metaphor I use is that it felt like being buried alive. Yeah. Because here you are knowing who you are, and yet you have to completely seal that off from anyone's awareness. So you're like banging on the lid of your coffin, desperate to bust free. Right. And everyone's just sort of walking over your grave unknowingly, you know, having no idea that you're down there screaming to be let out. Yeah. And when you're a kid, you know, your experience is very limited. You, you only have a couple of years under your belt. But those years, because they're all you know, feel like an eternity sure yeah i mean as you're living through it day to day and it's yeah that's a long time yeah so it's very hard and that's why you know i'm like you know any lifeline we can throw to to kids when they're young who are queer do it no for sure i and birding becomes this kind of constant for you to it's not really how you deal with your sexuality i don't think but it's a it's a part of of your identity that becomes it becomes formative, I guess, and just becomes who you are. But I like, I guess, talk to me just about sort of where birding sort of plays in figuring out your identity. Birding was part of how I coped. Yeah. You know, to get outside and see a larger world meant that I was no longer completely focused on my unbearable, my own unbearable reality. Yeah. And so I could lose myself in the woods, in the birds and what they were doing and how beautiful they were. So it was an important escape for me as a young person. I had other escapes too, but that was one of the big ones was, was birding. Yeah. So yeah, I I can't say enough about how important birding is to mental health, to calming you down, to getting your head away from your own problems and just making you look at a, a bigger more important world than your myopic one. That struck me again, too, during 9-11. And I think Mm. I talked about that in the book, which is that um, everybody in New York was just horribly depressed about what had happened and about what it said about the state of humanity and what we would do to each other. And I remember watching video of the towers as they burned before they fell, you know, that they were repeated endlessly back then. Sure. And a gull flew by. Mm. This, you know, silver and white gull on pristine wings in this crystal blue sky, because that was what the sky was that day. It was crystal blue. And I remember thinking, 
there goes a creature that no matter what awful things we do to each other, no matter what inhumanity we perpetrate against each other, the great cycles of nature go on. Mm. This bird continues on on its serene wings and we can't stop that. And yeah. thank God, you know, that, the, that I held on to that, to that idea that, that these cycles, that the migrations and the great patterns of the planet keep going. Yeah. As we were talking about at the beginning, we can, we can put our thumb on either side of that scale, but there's an inevitability to all of it too, that like we can't control it all. And even with our worst, let's yeah. say, you know, we let climate change go out of control and it wreaked havoc on the existing systems. You know what? Mother nature will recover. Yeah. She will rebalance. She will evolve new species eventually. It won't be in our lifetime. Yeah. And it might not be our species. Exactly. Our species may not survive to see it, yeah. which is why we should be taking action. Right. But mother nature will continue. So- yeah, it's it, that's a very comforting thought for me. Yeah, I love that. Um, getting back to the idea of kind of birding in your youth and stuff and finding that early, one of the things that was striking me as I was thinking about that experience of just, you know, going out and seeing these wild birds is this idea that this was, it was before social media and it was before kind of accessible photo equipment. I mean, I, I'm sure there were guys with, you know, big film cameras and telephoto lenses and stuff, but it wasn't. Yep wasn't to the level of accessibility that it is now. And like, there's a part of me, and I'm younger than you, of just like thinking, wow, like, you do this, how do you tell people about like, just doing it for its own sake has become kind of a foreign thing to me. And I didn't like that <laughs> in thinking about <laughs> it. I'm just like, how cool, though, to think of you in, you know, the late 80s, just walking around with a with a journal saying, "Ooh, I saw a such and such bird today. Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious sort of how social media has impacted the birding community and sort of you living through that transition, I guess. I am very old school. Yeah. I prefer to be in the moment yep. and in the experience. A lot of the new birders, and it's wonderful that we have all these new birders. COVID generated a whole bunch of them. Yeah. But a lot of them use the camera in place of binoculars. Some mm. of them use them in addition to binoculars. Some of them use it in place of binoculars. Yeah. So they have, you know, the the equipment has gotten less expensive and more efficient and lighter and better so that they can use the camera as their optic yep. and in addition take photos. That's the part that for me personally doesn't work. I don't want to be obsessing about, you know, capturing the perfect perfect photo. Right. I want to experience the bird in the moment. But on the other hand, for some of these new birders, it helps them learn. You know, they snap a lot of photos of what they're looking at, and then they can go home mm. at the end of the day and review those photos and look at field marks and start to learn what they should be looking for to be able to tell one bird from another. Yeah. So, you know, it's 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 a different way of birding. Works for some people, doesn't work for others. But there's definitely, yeah, in the younger generation, this attitude or an idea that if it doesn't appear on Instagram, it didn't happen. Right. And for the longest time, people would say to me, oh, so you take photos of birds? I'm like, no. And they're like, you don't take photos? And it was like an alien concept that right. you could go out and just watch the birds and not feel obliged to capture an image. The image is in the head yeah. and the experience is in the heart, in the memory. There's something interesting, too, that you hit on in the book of this idea of kind of the beauty in in the commonness, too. And, and you, we were talking about it uh, in this conversation of sort of you tuning out certain things that you kind of know are there 
but you do a lot of work like educating youths and, and walking them through Central Park and kind of showing them different birds and things. And you talked about in the book this experience of like looking for one particular bird and not being able to find it and kind of getting frustrated with that. And then a student seeing something else that was a very common bird and being like, whoa, look how beautiful that is. Do you still get the thrill out of kind of the everyday or, you know, Robin's Blue Jays, things like that? Or are they just kind of like, eh, I'm not, I'm less interested in that. Well, I think it's inevitable that with the more common birds, you start to take them a little bit for granted. Yeah. But then every once in a while, you pull yourself back and you stop and you look and you're like, oh, yeah, they are pretty cool. Yeah. That's what happened in that moment. I, I got to see the bird through the student's eyes, right. which is one reason why I love taking kids out into the park. And by doing that, you get to see the bird as if for the first time and, and really appreciate it again. The other thing that happens with very familiar birds is you stop looking at them for the field marks or whatever, but you start observing their behavior a lot more closely. Mm. I find one thing I do now with American robins, because there's a whole bunch of them. I'm lucky enough to have access to a roof garden here in the middle of Manhattan. Oh, wow. I know. A really rare thing. And the robins are always coming by because I put a little fountain up there that's uh-huh. kind of very rustic, naturalistic. So they're over, you know, that's their spa. And they get very cross <laughs> with me if I haven't kept it clean. Yeah. So the robins come by. And, you know, I see them all the time, but observing their behavior closely and the different sounds they make Mm. and trying to interpret what the different sounds mean, you know, under what situations they make, which sounds is really sort of become a a very interesting project for me. So there's all kinds of levels, even with common birds that you can take things to. I mean, pigeons. Yeah. How many (laughs) incredible... Yeah, everywhere. And yet they come in an incredible variety of colors like people. Yeah. And what happened was the pigeons most of us see, they're feral. They're not wild. Right. They were bred by people for particular colors and traits and things. Yeah. And then, you know, they got loose and they all started interbreeding and they made all these other patterns and colors, but they didn't average back to the original for some reason. There's yeah. still all those colors out there. So it makes it really fascinating to pay attention even to pigeons. Yeah. So. It's interesting, too, in the show you talked about, you were just talking about the different noises and stuff, that like different individual birds can have different sounds. I think you compared it to like a New Yorker versus a Chicagoan and just sort of like it's the same language, but it's completely different. Totally. Totally. They have dialects. Yeah. And I remember being birding down in, I think it was Maryland somewhere once, and I heard this bird singing, and I'm like, what the heck is that? And it was a cardinal. I know cardinals like the back of my hand. Right. But the dialect at that moment was sufficiently different that I was like, oh, wow, yeah. you've, got a, you've got your own Southern twang going on. <laughs> yeah, they, and it's interesting, some of the birding apps, they label where the recording was taken oh, so that you can start to distinguish the dialect. You can tell the drawl or whatever. Or, yeah, exactly. That's so exactly. Yeah. Very cool. Um I got to ask just sort of about the kind of the moment that propelled you into the moment that we're in now, I guess, which is the the viral incident in Central Park, as you refer to it, the incident. Um, What's interesting to me, I guess, in thinking about that is just like there are people like Rosa Parks or somebody that said, "Okay, I'm going to take a stand. I want to represent something like this is going to be my thing that was not the case for you. Like this kind of became a narrative that that you didn't have control over and weren't necessarily looking for. It was just kind of, it was thrust upon you and you came to represent a lot of different things for a lot of different people. Like, 
I'm just curious about the experience of kind of living through that and just, I, I guess, what it felt like to be there and, and what it told you about humanity and, and America in 2020. It was a little overwhelming, but um, I've been an activist my whole life. It's kind of a family shtick. Yeah. And so when it happened, you know, my attitude was, well, if you're going to thrust all these cameras and microphones in my face, I'm going to use them to say what I think needs to be said in this moment. And so, you know, it's like, take it and use it as an opportunity to, to maybe get people to see things that they haven't been open to before that they haven't had a perspective on with their own eyes before. And that's what was important to that moment to me. Um, So yeah, it was thrust upon me. It wasn't anything I went out that day looking for, but once it was, I'm like, all right, well, let's do something with this that matters. Yeah. So that was sort of where I tried to take it. And you know, it's, it's, It's a moment that has its own life. And and one of the reasons why it has its own life is because of what happened later that same day, which is that same day in the afternoon was when George Floyd was murdered by that police officer who kept his his knee on his neck for over nine minutes. Another example of that racial bias that percolates through our culture, bubbling to the surface in a much more serious and fatal way way than it had earlier in the morning in the incident with me, but both showed that bias in in different respects. Yeah. I didn't realize until I read it in your book that the timing was, was that, that like it was, it was that morning for you and then that afternoon for George Floyd. And to me, that whole time kind of, it all became kind of a blur. And I think, you know, COVID certainly helped with that of just, we were all in a very, uh, very heightened state of anxiety, perhaps, but it was a terrible time in New York. Yeah. We were all just at our wits end because we, we were basically the epicenter in in the States of what was going on. There was no vaccine. Nobody knew if there would be a vaccine. Right. Nobody was really sure how it was being spread. Um, and people were dying, I think at 500 a day, maybe more, um, in our city. And it was just, so difficult. I mean, we were we were all under a lot of stress. Yeah, and social distancing becomes a lot harder when you're kind of at the density <laughs> that you're at yes, in New York. Exactly. You know, I, I live out in the suburbs outside Boston, and it's a lot easier for me to, you know, go out in my yard or whatever than it is, you know, if you're in an apartment building and you got to get in an elevator with three other people. It's like, oh, who's in here with me? Where have they been? You know, that kind of thing. It, um, yeah. But it, kind of on the activism point, when you talk about it in the book. I loved this passage. Uh, You said, first, it's not about Amy Cooper. What's important is what her actions revealed, how deeply and widely racial bias runs in the United States. And you go on to say, if you're looking for Amy Cooper to yell at, look in the mirror. Like, I love that because I think we tend to kind of cast people as, as heroes or villains or, you know, ascribe certain characteristics to them. And you're getting at this much bigger issue that kind of we all have a role to play in anti-racism and in sort of just how we, how we interact with each other, you know, that, that you get at the heart of that there, which I really appreciated. Well, thanks. I mean, to me, it was important to say, because, you know, people, it's too easy for people to let themselves off the hook yeah, to not examine their own, their own behavior by saying, Oh, look at the awful thing that person did. I'm not like that. Right. And actually do a little more self-examination and you may find 
that there are things that you do, maybe not quite so vociferously or so obviously, but they're there. Yeah. Um, not and even it, always consciously. I mean, it's exactly it's built into our culture. I mean, you talked about that in the book of <laughs> just like um, the talking about Central Park and and uh, I'm sorry, the name of the village that was there prior. Oh, Seneca Seneca, Seneca Village. Yeah, talking about Central Park and and Seneca Village and like you kind of parroting this this history that had been sort of spread by the people that developed the park rather than the true history that you were kind of presenting it to a group that, Hey, these, these were squatters and it was a, you know, kind of uh, a shanty town. Shanty town. That was the word. It, Thank you. It was not a shanty town. And, and for listeners who are not familiar with Seneca village, what yeah. it was, was this uh, African-American community, almost entirely African-American community with some Irish immigrants that was situated on the land around 81st street, 85th street yeah. in New York. But that land was what eventually the city elders decided was going to become Central Park. Right. So that Seneca Village, which included two-story homes that people owned, they were not squatters. It was not shanty towns. They yeah. had deeds. They had churches. They had schools, and all of that had to go so that we could get Central Park. So you know, I love Central Park. I think it's it's like one of the crown jewels of, of New York City. But I think we have to be mindful of the fact that there was a community of African-Americans there before yeah. and that it was swept away because they were the easiest to get rid of. They were the vulnerable people. Right. And so the, the sweep them away and make a new park. Yeah. And how that narrative survives, though, that that this was yes. a shanty town. Like, that's, exactly. that's what people learn. And it's like, oh, well. Who's the teaching spin. me this? Where is this coming the, from? Yeah. The spin of the era was, oh, we had to clear this shanty town. And it took other black people who were more familiar with the history to say, yeah, actually, it wasn't a shanty town. It yeah. was a real place. Yeah. So. And and I mean, there, that's history is littered with that of, you know, going to Robert Moses and expressways and, you know, tearing through neighborhoods. We Absolutely. Here in Boston with the uh, the central artery and just there's there's kind of that everywhere you look for it. And um, yeah, it's, but as we were talking about, I guess it's, it's questioning that narrative and, and where does that come from? And well, but you can't do that in Florida. Yeah, right. No, I mean, we make a joke of it, but really, you know, that kind of erasure of those fine points of history yeah. is, is now very much part of a political agenda. It's true. Um, that is, that is finding its, truest expression at the moment in florida it's yeah. most unfettered expression in florida and uh that is you know my heart goes out to everybody there in florida who's resisting that yeah and trying to push back against it well i, I think for you it must be especially hard because there's there's the black piece of it and you know crt and all that kind of stuff but then there's also the lgbt side of just you know don't say gay and all these things that like I, do you <laughs> I don't know. Do you see that passing at some point or like, is that, is that, are we in this era for a while and just kind of have to figure out how to, how to cope with it? It'll pass, but it won't pass by itself. Yeah. It's going to take people actively talking about it. Like we are now, Yeah, you know, talking about the fact that, you know, when people say, oh, well, we're just standing up for parental rights. Yeah. Well, no, because there are gay parents. Right. Um, uh, oh, no, we're just trying to protect the children. Well, no, because there are gay children. Right. I was one of them. Yeah. Cutting through all the excuses, all the rationalizations for what at its heart is 
a legitimization of bigotry. Yeah. And making sure people recognize that, saying that over and over and over again. And, you know, where necessary, you know, make your decisions about where you go on vacation or what you're going to do or what juice you're going to drink in the morning based on your values and how you can express your displeasure um, about what's going on in certain places. Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of the the hardest part sometimes for people with activism is just figuring out what what are the right steps. And I think you outlined some there, but even going back to, to what we were talking about relative to that incident of just sometimes it's just a matter of, of speaking up and, you know, when something isn't right saying, Hey, this doesn't fly. Like I don't approve of this. You know, that that's, uh, you need all of that. I guess you need to vote with your wallet and you need to vote with your voice. Yeah, no, you, you, you really do need all of that. And um, there are things we can do as individuals. I get really frustrated when I look at our society and how many people abdicate their individual power thinking, oh, well, there's nothing really I can do about that. Yeah. Nonsense. Uh, I ran into it just uh, two days ago. Uh-huh. I was registering voters out on in Long Island uh, on the, in a town called Freeport uh-huh. that I'm very familiar with because my dad lived and died there after, you know, after he moved out of my hometown. And so I'm in Freeport and I'm registering voters. And there was this lesbian guitarist who had just given this great performance at this pride festival. That's why we were there trying to register LGBTQ voters. And so as she packed up her guitar, you know, me and my friend who were registering folks came up to her and said, Hey, yeah, are you registered? And she goes, Oh yeah, no, I feel bad about it, but I just don't think individuals make a difference. Mm. She might as well have taken a knife and stuck it in my heart. Yeah, because that's the attitude that guarantees that things like what's going on in, in Florida will continue to happen because it is our individual responsibility and our power. We have the power to change these things Yeah, by voting, by encouraging others to vote, by registering new voters, by, you know, starting our own uh, uh, organizations to push back against you know the the awful campaigns against the lgbtq community that are percolating up now sure we have this ability and if we don't use it well then yeah florida is is our future yeah um wrapping it all up i guess and kind of bringing it back to birding that struck me in the new york episode where um you go out onto a queen's beach and there's a piping plover is this kind of particular bird that you're trying to save and you know go to great lengths to i'm sorry i have to interrupt you yeah the piping plover is an adorable bird it is like (laughs) the epitome of cuteness i saw it on the show it no it's it's beautiful and and you know it's it's habitat is threatened just by beachgoers, and so there are these people working to to put these kind of um, mesh cages over the nests when they find them to make sure that the the babies can develop and all this. And you ask the guy who you're there with at one point, just like, "Why should we be doing this? Why are we going to these lengths to protect them?" And his answer was, "Because we can." And I think it kind of wraps up the birding piece. It, it wraps up the the racial piece, the the uh, LGBT piece, like kind of all of that like we can right so like let's do it exactly exactly and that guy i will say his name because it deserves to be mentioned yeah chris alieri who uh-huh. founded the plover project because it is entirely volunteer you want oh, to wow. see the power of individuals he just took this upon himself he got a whole bunch of other people to join him and they are out there in the rockaways 
fighting for this adorable little bird every summer so that it has a future as one of our fellow New Yorkers. So, you know, never, ever come to me and say, I can't do anything about this because that's nonsense. We all have tremendous individual power to make this world better. I don't care whether you're talking about uh, justice for black people, equality for gay people, or saving our birds and protecting the habitats. We have the power to do this if we accept the responsibility. All right, there we go. Christian Cooper. I wasn't sure sort of at the end there, like how to bring it all back around to birds. And just like we talk so much about his identity and the different parts of his identity. And it's amazing that it all comes back to birds. I don't know. I guess you can sort of see birds as the symbol for how we're supposed to live our life or how we're supposed to relate to the natural world or, you know, whatever it is. And I think there are those lessons there about about conservation, about standing up for those whose rights have been trampled on. When we put our thumb on the scale on one side, we got to balance it out on the other, right? That's true of race. That's true of LGBTQ issues. And uh, it's true of birds and, and our natural world, too. And honestly, I feel like so much of that stuff is related I don't know. It's it's too much to get into here, but I talk about it some in the newsletter. And if you're not already reading it, heathrasella.com slash newsletter. I publish issues twice a week. But just this idea that racism, homophobia, transphobia, misogyny, people like to think of those as all discrete problems. And I, I would put environmentalism in there as well, too, environmental degradation as a problem. The solution often is kind of the same thing. And that solution really starts with each of us. It starts with our own individual actions. What are we going to do to stand up against racism today? What are we going to do to stand up against homophobia, transphobia, misogyny, environmental degradation, all of it? It starts with individual action. Christian's got it, man. He's got it. Love talking to him. Better living through birding. Notes from a Black Man in the Natural World is available now wherever you buy your books. Go check that book out. I'm telling you, it is a good read. You will really enjoy it. An Extraordinary Birder is playing on Nat Geo Wild right now, and I believe is on Disney Plus later this summer. So look for that as well. If you want to get my latest podcast episodes as well as issues of the newsletter, go to heathrasella.com slash newsletter. Sign up there for free. You can get everything delivered to your inbox. If you'd like to support it, you can also have a paying membership. Paying members get early access to the podcast as well as special member-only video posts and some other member-exclusive items as well. Plus, you're helping keep this cool little podcast alive, which I really appreciate. I am at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. Give me a follow and uh, go check out Christian's book. It's a good read, man. I'm telling you, you'll like it. That's all I got for this week. Stay safe out there. Enjoy your summer. We'll talk soon. <laughs>